This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Our guest is a member of Parliament who's achieved Cabinet Minister level, the youngest ever chair of the influential Foreign Affairs Select Committee. He served in the military in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's an Arab speaker, learning it in Yemen, and a fervent supporter of Israel who names one of the Jewish state's prime ministers as a political hero. I think women in leadership positions tend to do rather well. I'm a big fan of Golda Meir as well. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of, uh, of, of somebody a little bit more historic, perhaps uh, Elizabeth I. I mean, she wasn't too much a fan of Catholics, to be fair. But, uh, but, but, but she was an extraordinary leader for our country. Different times, though, exactly, exactly right. He ran in the Tory party leadership campaign to replace Boris Johnson, but he didn't make the cut. So perhaps under a future prime minister, Tom would make a decent foreign secretary. This interview was recorded just before that party leadership vote. If this is your first episode, even if this isn't, you can't have heard all of them. Scroll up to episode 99 for the moral clarity of Zionist thinker, the former member of Knesset and author Enat Wilf. 40 or so glorious minutes of most clear-sighted prospectus on how Middle East peace can come about, problem-solving the Middle East conflict. We realize that to the credit of Palestinians, they've been saying for a century what they wanted. They've been consistent we have not listened. Or when we did listen, we didn't take them seriously. From the river, from the Jordan River, to the Mediterranean Sea, to the sea, one Arab Palestine, no Jewish state in any borders whatsoever. Tom Tugendhat, MBE, MP, thank you very much for joining me on Johnny Gould's Jewish State. It's a huge pleasure to be with you, Johnny. Now, they tell me that members of Parliament should have a bit of a work experience before they enter the Commons, and you certainly fit that bill. Uh, there was a military career in Iraq and Afghanistan as an officer in the Reserves and the TA. I'm always so impressed by the discipline and conduct of the British Army individuals that I've met. Uh, what disciplines and life lessons did it teach you? The biggest life lesson it taught me was uh, about our own country, actually, because there are there are very few professions in the world where you really do learn about your own people, your own community. And the army is one of them because what you do is you serve with people from across the British Isles, people from Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Cornwall, in the north, the south of England, everywhere. I mean, it's just, it's one of those jobs where you really do get to meet an extraordinary range of people. And so you learn about your own country. And that's what, I'd say that's what motivated me because you see that there are some people who've got extraordinary opportunities, other people who've found life very difficult. You know, you learn, you just learn about how things are working and how things are failing in the whole of the UK. And it's classless as well, isn't it? There's, um, there's, there's literally people from every uh, kith and kin, every race, colour and creed, every religion. Yes, literally, literally. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm on your I'm on your podcast, so I'll tell you. I mean, you know, there's there aren't there aren't that many Jewish soldiers, but but there are a few. And very sadly, there was a, a young officer who lost his life, uh, who was from the community, and and you know that just speaks to the you know I mean, to the tragedy that we all face together. Indeed, indeed. Uh, now you studied theology at Bristol University, and then you did a master's degree in Islamic studies at uh, Cambridge. 
and then learned Arabic in Yemen. Add to that potion that you're also, as you mentioned, of Jewish ancestry. You're a Roman Catholic, a true citizen of the world. And dare I say, uh, like a number of non-Jewish people in recent years, a bit like uh, my friend Colonel Richard Kemp, he has experienced anti-Semitism, uh, even though he's not Jewish. And uh, you're, you're, you're proud of your Jewish ancestry. Of course. Of course I'm proud of it. Um, you know, my uh, grandfather came from Vienna in the 1920s and um, came to Britain, settled in Britain. And I'm extremely proud of, of, of my ancestry, sadly. Um, my ancestry led to many of my relatives um, dying in the, in, in the Second War, as many of the community did. You know, my grandfather converted, but his, uh, not all of his family did. Um, and, and as we all know, conversion didn't save you anyway. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I'm very proud of, of my family. Um, and I'm now very British because I think you can be you know, I, I think you can be very British with a background like mine. I think you can, you, you know, the wonderful thing about being British is you you choose to be in, uh, and, um, you know, the United Kingdom includes many, many, many different people in it. And that, that I think, one of the great strengths of the UK. I'm very glad you said that because, uh, Tom, I'm also of Viennese descent. Uh, my uh, grandfather and grandmother came over in 1938 and 1939, respectively. And my grandma, with a very thick Viennese accent, always taught me one thing, that she was very proud to be British. She embraced British values as they were in the 30s, in the 40s, and she built a life very quickly. Uh, and it's thanks to the platform of this country that she did it. So I'm very, very glad that uh, your family uh, journey has been a similar one as we've settled in, uh, in the UK. Can we talk about Eman, the Eman network, which is a new global counterterrorism database? It was launched in London a couple of months ago, and it stands for the Extremist Monitoring. Have we got another guest in the studio? We have, I'm afraid. Yes, we have. I'm going to let me just let me just. Uh, Beatrice, can you be a little bit quiet, please? Sorry, I think we, we, she's opening her advent calendar, and so chocolates are coming out. So it may, oh, may so go lovely. quieter quite quickly. It was so lovely, and Beatrice contributed so much. I may even keep that in the podcast. I, I <laughs> Every community has extremism in it, and you know, you know, there isn't a single com human community, I'm afraid, in the world that is um, that is immune. It just just doesn't exist. Um, so, so finding a way to be able to track this, to be able to deal with this in a productive and constructive way, to make sure that we challenge ideologies, I think is absolutely essential. And that's why I have to say when Ed Hussein asked me to do it, uh, I was very quick to say yes, because nobody knows better the journey of radicalization that you can go on. And if you haven't read his book, um, then I think then frankly, you're missing out. And that's an absolutely essential reading. Um, his book, The Islamist, which is just the, one of the most brilliant books in the English language, but is also um, an extraordinary uh, journey of tragedy uh, of a young man who, who really does delve into the pits of hell through his own extremist ideology. But thank God, uh, comes out the other side. I'm very proud to say, Tom, that he was a guest on my podcast we talked about the Islamist, his personal journey. So it was during your studies at Newham College in 1995 that you had that epiphany, to quote another religious term, to leave the group. Apparently you witnessed the stabbing of a Christian student. What did you think the radicals stood for before you witnessed that? 
it was in my mind something that was always about ideas, something that was relevant over there in Bosnia. But not there, violence. And not here in England. Right. It almost felt as though we were mobilizing for revolution in the Muslim world. We wanted to remove every Muslim government over there. Yes, the Saudi government had to go, the you know, the Moroccans, the Jordanians in particular, we seem to have a real venom for. But all of those governments were, quote-unquote, illegitimate, and they had to go. And we saw jihad as a legitimate means for doing so. But over there, what we didn't realize what that, that was that the moment you unleash that beast, the moment you create that monster, it hurts you here at home. So, I mean, I witnessed that, I think it was 94, 95, the, the murder of this student. And that, that seeing someone dead who I knew because of the rhetoric of Hezbollah Tahrir around jihad and Muslim supremacism and the hatred for anyone that disagreed with us, including other Muslims, for me was the logical conclusion of those teachings. So you know, now we talk about Al-Qaeda and ISIS and Wahhabism and uh, ideological extremes, and we saw that happen on our college campuses. You raise the temperature, you make the other mm-hmm. someone to hate, and then before you know it, someone somewhere will take up arms and violence ensues from that mindset. So the mood music is what we were playing, and I quickly identified that led to killings and suicide bombings. Are you playing catch-up with Johnny Gould's Jewish State? I've had the pleasure of some really great guests. How about Douglas Murray? Israel is a rare country in the West uh, in that it does buck many of the trends. I mean, there, isn't a, there isn't a fertility rate problem in, in Israel. Um, for instance, as there, there is in, in most European countries. There is a strong feeling of nationhood and of the depths that the country needs to call upon in order to unite its people. And Hillel Neuer, whose UN Watch keeps check on the excesses and mission creep of the UN human rights in Geneva. The challenges are great. They're not going away. I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we've experienced in America in the past five years, the known to some of the woke revolution, where there's a kind of a McCarthyism. If you say something, it could be cancelled and fired from your university, from your corporation, uh, from uh, journalists, and often it's uh, it's an anti-liberalism. So that, that to be honest, really, really scares me because we need our democracies to be healthy, to be honest, to be, to be truth-tellers. And so I am deeply concerned. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts... Think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Johnny Gould or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee. ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould. Uh, and he talked with just immense poetry at the QE2 Conference Centre as well. So uh, He's a great man. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he's a great, great man. And I, uh, I, I tip my hat to him. And we talked about, in, in the news conference, about how we would be, you know, disturbed by the latest act of terror, and then uh, after a few weeks we'd forget about the tragedy. And indeed, it was literally the next day. The murder in a church of David Amos MP during his weekly surgery, nothing could be more of an abomination to our society and its values than that. And I think people are lost on the idea of it being in a church. 
Well, look, I think it's, uh, I mean, uh, on, on so many levels, that was an extraordinary shocking moment. Uh, it, I, I hate to admit it, but it was almost less shocking because it had happened so recently before with my friend Joe Cox. Yes. And, you know, I, so I was shocked, but not surprised almost. I mean, I, and I, it was, it, it was horrific. And to see um, the man who committed it now pleading not guilty, I mean, it's, it's, it's just grossly insulting. Um, I mean, it's, you know, this is, well, let's see what happens in the court case anyway. This this shock, but not surprise. You know, we mustn't get used to this. We have to get angry. You know, we can't not look back in anger like we're told to in Manchester. What a what a horrible! I mean, that is one of the worst outrages in the history of our country of all time. You know, teenage girls at a concert in Manchester, but it's it's not commemorated in 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 in, in horrible terms. It's it's sort of. Um, they're there, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get through this together. We should be angrier about these things. I, I, I really, I don't understand why the reaction in our media and our commentariat is to sort of hold hands together and, and, and sort of pray for a better future, whereas actually we need to confront these things because they keep happening. Well, can I just tell you, I mean... That- from the from the emails and letters, from talking to people around the community, people are angry, uh, and and the fact that it isn't reflected always in 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 media is, doesn't mean it isn't happening, and you know I think I think people are angry for a very good reason. It is simply unacceptable to have this level of betrayal. You know, even if you're not the person who's directly affected. Now, you know most people will have seen the murder of David. And they won't have known David and they'll, you know, for them, it'll be just another MP. Um, for the people, for many of us who saw the attacks in Manchester, they're utterly horrific, but they didn't directly affect us. And so a lot of people don't feel the immediacy of that anger. What, what they feel, and I think they're right about, is they feel the absolute betrayal of it. Because what we're feeling is... Somebody has come to our society or grown up in our society or been, you know, been in our society for generations and has turned around and has done an act of violence against us that is, frankly, so horrific that it's a betrayal of literally everything our community stands for. And this is why I've been pushing for a new treason law, because I think this isn't just an act of violence, horrific as that is. This is a genuine betrayal of everything that our society stands for and all of the acts of our community to hold together and to work together. And so I think, I think it's an assault, not just on the individual concern, not just on their family, not just on their community, but on our whole country. And that's where I think, you know, we need to use words as they should be used. You know, this is an act of treason. Here, here, Tom, we see similar acts of extreme violence in Israel, and I know you're a determined supporter of Israel. We see them all the time on Twitter, little 30-second CCTVs of a man walking across the road and then suddenly turning around and starting to knife the nearest passerby. And then soldiers who are either off duty or on duty then shoot the terrorist dead. The thing about Israel is that unlike perhaps how you're presenting it, 
it really does affect everyone in that country because everyone serves in the IDF, whether you're a Jew, a Christian, or an Arab. And indeed, you know, maybe the Arabs aren't exactly Zionists, but they are supporters of the State of Israel to a very large degree, not every single one, but they serve in the IDF, the Druze as well. And I'm just wondering whether actually it's the cohesion in Israel that perhaps we might uh, think that we should uh, sort of attempt to lean to. What is the difference between Britain and Israel in the fact that every Israeli, when they see a horror attack like that, and of course it affected us in this country with L.E.K., who is the grandson of my rabbi, actually, uh, in uh, South Hampstead in London, who was machine-gunned on his way to work by the uh, Kotel, by the Western Wall. It affects, it affects a community uh, literally across the world, but not here. Look, I think, well, I think, I think this, is one of the, this is one of the realities that we, you know, we've got to face, which is that um, you know, this level of violence against any community in any place is an attack on all of us. And we do see terrorism um, around the world. And let's not forget, by the way, Johnny, if you look at the, uh, the, the level of attacks on completely innocent Syrian families by um, elements of their own government, by other Islamist movements over the last 15 years, that is the most extraordinary level of violence uh, that we've seen in a very long time. And if you look at, for example, what's happening in Yemen, you know, again, you see that the Houthi and indeed other groups have been committing violent acts against their own population for years. Uh, and, you know, this level of terrorism is completely unacceptable. But it's certainly clear that the, the biggest level of sort of Islamist violence is against the, the Muslim community. And that's, you know, I mean, it's depressing to, to see it. It's really horrific. But standing up for communities, whether they're you know, in Israel or whether they're in Syria or Lebanon, wherever, I think is, is, is something that we should be doing, not just because you know, it's, it's standing up for humanity. But the reality is that this feeds over. And, you know, the one thing, forgive me, Johnny, the one thing I'm paid to do and the one thing that's my absolute priority is, is the prosperity and happiness of the British people. Uh, and that's what I focus on every single day. And so when I see this level of violence around the world, I think, how is that going to affect us here at home? And sadly, the overspill is real. And I, you know, I wish it wasn't. I wish we were an island. We could you know, pull up the drawbridge and, uh, and forget about it. But we can't. That's not how life works. So I think it's incredibly important that we stand up for uh, those around the world and we stand strong. And, and, and that's what we do in order to defend ourselves. I, I'm lucky enough to represent a fantastic community in um, West Kent. And there are problems. Of course, there are problems in our community and there are problems everywhere in our community. But, but the reality is we are lucky. We are absolutely blessed to live in one of the safest and best governed countries in the world. And that's not an advert for the government, by the way. That's an advert for uh, civic institutions at every level. Um, you, know, you, you know, I'm just I'm just saying we are very, very lucky that we have a country where basic freedoms are guaranteed, where um, most things work really well, where, you know, you can, you can pretty reliably get in a taxi you can pretty reliably get on a train. You can pretty reliably, you know, travel to work, you know, morning, morning, noon or night, uh, and you'll be safe. And I mean, that sounds like, you know, I'm saying something that's so obvious, but the tragedy is in many parts of the world, that isn't obvious. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't more to do. There is more to do. But I think the reality is we're, we're, we live in a very blessed and very lucky place. Uh, and I think, you know, Britain's got a huge amount going for it. That doesn't mean we don't have more to do, but, but you know, these are, these are good starts. 
Thank you for your perspective on that, sir. Um, now, you condemned the UN uh, Security Council for its official criticism of Israel's settlement building, as it's known, in um, the West Bank or Judea in Samaria. Uh, in January 2017, you wrote that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict didn't matter in an article about the demands of the protesters in the Arab Spring and concluded, why was it more pressing than uh, other disputed territories, for example, Kashmir or Tibet. It, it isn't. It simply deflects attention for those most in need of a diversion. I mean, that is the truth, isn't it? That uh, when, uh, for example, the Archbishop of Canterbury criticizes uh, Israeli treatment of Christians, it's just about the only place in uh, the Middle East where Christianity <laughs> is actually respected and uh, you are free to pray. So he's, he's definitely got that one wrong for the the deeply embattled Christian populations of Egypt, of Syria, of Iran, of everywhere else in the Middle East. Well, to be fair to the Archbishop, he does actually criticise other communities for their treatment of Christians. So it's not, it's not just, it's not just Israel. He's... Sorry, I've been, I've been interrupted by the sugar plum therapy. The, um, look, to be fair to the Archbishop, he does actually criticise uh, a stand-up for the rights of Christians around the world, and he has been critical of the treatment of Christians in other parts of the world. Um, but I think, I think the point stands, which is, look, when I was in uh, Tahrir Square just before, um, you know, just during the Arab Spring in, in Cairo, and when I went to Damascus in 2011 to see what was, you know, well, to go on holiday, but, you know, I used to live in Beirut, so it was really good to see some friends in, in Beirut and Damascus to see what was going on. Um, one of the things that really struck me is how many people were trying to say, oh, this is all about Israel. It's not about Israel. It's about people who want their civic rights respected. It's about people who want to have the same sort of rights as uh, free citizens anywhere else in the world. It's about people who want to stand up for, for the same sort of liberties that we would expect, not just in Israel, but frankly anywhere. So, you know, it's not about Israel. And, and I think an awful lot of what we're talking about, you know, in the Middle East is always sort of reduced to, oh, it's about Israel, Palestine, you fix that, it's all over. It's the, the old, you know, Corbynist line sort of thing. It's like, it's nothing to do with that. It's to do with the civil rights of individuals and their ability to live free in their own communities. And if they didn't have dictators, you know, trying to, trying to dominate every aspect of their waking and indeed sometimes sleeping lives, then we'd live in a very, very different society. And I think this is where, uh, you know, the obsession with Israel by some groups has been not just uh, an example of a form of anti-Semitism, which I think in some cases it has been, but also I think it's been uh, uh, deeply, deeply unhelpful um, to the cause and rights of, of um, communities, you know, Muslims, uh, Arabs, in uh, places like Syria and, you know, and elsewhere. Their rights have been damaged by this complete obsession with, a, with an issue that isn't the main event. Indeed, a lot of people listening will applaud that point of view here. Now, you were elected uh, chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, which is uh, very influential and has a, a really big say in affecting foreign policy around the world. And the British government still has sway around the world, particularly, I would say, uh, post-Brexit. Uh, whatever people say, if they want to bash Britain, that's fine. But I think as an independent voice, Britain still has values which are separate of the European Union in history and always that we always were. And I think that we can enjoy more influence uh, post-Brexit because of that. But y you were the youngest person ever to hold the post 
Um, clearly a very capable and ambitious man, sir, and very lucid and... There's a lot of talent on the front bench in the Conservative Party at the moment. I'm thinking of Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, etc. There are people queuing up to be Conservative Prime Minister or a future leader of the Conservative Party. There's a lot of talent there. Well, I mean, I think I think there is, and, and I'm glad that there is, because I think it's it's important that the British people and the Conservative Party has a you know has a wide selection whenever that moment comes. And I think it's you know, I think it's an honourable thing to want to lead your country. I think it's a, I think it's a respectable thing to have ambition for leadership, and I'm not ashamed to have it. And I'm glad that others do too, uh, because I think that there is no greater privilege than leading your country and your community. So, you know, of course, of course, I'd like to do it. Uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't mean it's the, you know, the only the only possible outcome, but it's uh, you know the only thing I'd accept if you mean. But it, yes. but I think it's it. But it's. I think it's something that. Uh, I think it's something that that is perfectly reasonable to have ambition towards. Um, because I think if you if you if you love your country, if you spent your your life protecting it, if you spent your life uh, serving it, as I'm lucky enough to have done, then I think you know looking at the problems that you saw, you know, when you're talking to soldiers in Afghanistan or Iraq, and hearing about their lives at home. Um, and you see the problems that you know education or healthcare or job opportunities or any number of different things have caused. Then I think wanting to fix them, wanting to try and help change the lives of our people for the better, to you know whether that's you know standing up for policing and making sure our streets are safer, making sure our schools are better, helping to make sure our hospitals work better, you know defending our borders and, and making sure that migration is only ever legal. You know, all these things I think are reasonable things to want to do, and and I think protecting Britain and standing up for Britain uh, is a great thing to do. I think you know, as I as I said earlier, Johnny, I think you know Britain's interests are many other people's interests too, and I think a free a free Britain, a strong Britain, is in the interests of our friends and allies, whether they're in France or Israel or America or you know Japan. The world truly is joined up. Uh, Tom, finally, can I ask you, my friend Nick Timothy, your friend Nick Timothy, says that his uh, political inspiration, his hero, is Joseph Chamberlain. There's a bit of brumminess about that, of course. He built the Suez in Berlin. There's a lot of brumminess about it. There's, There's a, a lot, lot of, of brumminess uh, about it. Indeed, and I'm a Nick brummy. is very brummy. He, he is. <laughs> he doesn't talk like a brummy, but we know he is one. And uh, like me, he's a brummy really and a fan, so, um, you know, he's going a very, very long way in my book. Um, who's your political hero? Oh, well, I have several. And you know, you can't be you can't be uh, a conservative and uh, you can't be a conservative and a, and a soldier and not have Churchill as a hero. Of course, you can't. Um, but but the reality is that uh, you know the great thing about our communities, I think there are some there are some amazing people who have stood up for Britain in different ways. And and I have to say, I'm I'm still a huge fan of Margaret Thatcher. Uh, and I have to say, I think women in leadership positions tend to do rather well. I'm a big fan of Golda Meir as well. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of, uh, uh, of, of somebody a little bit more historic, perhaps uh, Elizabeth I. I mean, she wasn't too much a fan of Catholics, to be fair, but uh, <laughs> but, but but she was an extraordinary time, leader Tom. for our country. Different times, though. Exactly, exactly right. We can't apply 21st century values to absolutely everything. Despite That's right. I'm not going to be tearing down her statues. I can tell you that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be putting them up. I'm that, going to be putting them that up. That would be a bit of a surprise, I must tell you. Tom Tugendhat, MBE MP, thank you so much for your time on Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you very much, Johnny. It's lovely to be with you. And uh, Perfect. Maybe, maybe even Beatrice will get a little credit in there as well. You never know. Yeah, yeah you can. <laughs> Crikey, yes. <laughs>
Thank you. It's Sorry about that. Zoom. No, it's okay. lovely. It's lovely. It's a typical Zoom Zoom discussion. It's, uh, I'm afraid it is. Yeah. Life in the last two years. Lovely. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> cool. Okay. Thank cheers, you, Johnny. All the best. See, See you later. Soon. And while you're on, did you catch these episodes of Johnny Gould's Jewish State? Press the subscribe button. Scroll back for ex-foreign affairs and diplomatic TV correspondent, now best-selling author Tim Marshall, on the power of geography. Basically, we just really need to try as hard as we can to understand the other side and, and seek to make compromises. Um, I'll leave you with that. I actually think compromise is a beautiful word. Danny, the Mossad commander, and the extraordinary story of the Red Sea spies. Yeah, I wanted to tell you that because this is something I know. I think I never told anybody. Danny, this is very, very beautiful, and I. <laughs> this is really going to be uh, an extraordinary interview. And the inside story on the making of Fauda. It's a special unit, very special unit that actually Israel created in order to avoid mass casualties. You have to go inside a difficult and a crazy places in order to, to pick and to take just one terrorist instead of bombing a whole uh, neighborhood or something like that. So you risk, risk your life in order to do that. You have to be an amazing actor because you're going to be an undercover and you have to go inside territories with different language, different body language, different clothes, different smell, everything. You have to be an amazing actor and a very cool guy. And you have to avoid all the noises and just concentrate on your the thing that you've been sent to do. Johnny Gould's Jewish state is now stepping up to the plate. It's time for us as an audio provider to report Israel around the world with consistency and journalistic integrity. But I need your help. A one-off donation is always gratefully received, but a monthly donation really gets our service off the ground. To donate now, go to patreon.com slash johnnygould or paypal.me slash jonathanlgould. Those addresses again, patreon.com slash johnnygould or paypal.me slash Jonathan L. Gould.